You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, good evening. You know, uh, when, you're, when you learn some new information, what your mind tries to do in order to, to keep that information is uh, your mind kind of, if we think of it like it makes a hook, and your mind tries to put the new information and hook it onto the old information, and that's kind of how you get it to stick if you're trying to learn a new thing. So, I mean, if I start uh, just babbling on about like, 6th century China or something, uh, you do have a hook for that. You're going to hook on to China. Like, you know what China is. And so even something like 6th century China, which I guess I assume no one knew a lot about, but I might be wrong, but assuming you don't, you're, not, that, you're still going to have a hook to hook that information onto, even if the subject is pretty unknown. Something like uh, when people talk to me about cars, for example, and I don't have a lot of knowledge about cars, and I, I'm like, the gas goes in the gas tank. I mean, that's, and people are talking about things like carburetors. Like, I know the word, but I don't know what it does. And I have nothing to hook that knowledge onto. So when people say things like that, I have no idea what they're talking about. And the, the knowledge doesn't stick. So that's how we retain information. That's how the brain works. You have your existing knowledge is like a hook that hooks onto the new knowledge. And as long as you can connect it in some way, that's how you learn the information. That's how we do it with everything. Now, because this is how our brain works, something like the gospel uh, might not make a lot of sense or why we would have a lot of misunderstandings about it. Because the gospel is something that's so outside of our natural way of thinking. You know, the good news that says that we were created to be in a relationship with God, but we ruin that relationship with our sin... Yet God loves us so much, He came to the earth to pay the penalty for that sin and give us His righteousness because He wants a relationship with us. See, that is so outside of our way of thinking that it leads to a lot of misunderstandings because what we try to do is try to hook that information on stuff that we already know. And they might not be the same. Like, I think probably the biggest example of this would be God's love. Because God's way of loving is so different from our way of loving. We try to hook God's love onto our love, and we have, that's not, they're not the same thing. And that creates a whole bunch of misunderstandings and false assumptions about the way God would love because they're trying to hook that onto our existing knowledge. See, with us, when, when we talk about love between people, we kind of have to prove ourselves to them. We have to earn a certain amount of respect. Uh, we have to earn their trust before they're going to love us, before we'll get close. So, I mean, you know, just an obvious way to think of it, but it's to hook that knowledge on. Like my wife, Adrian and I, she's the closest person, the person I'm closest to on earth, the one I love the most on earth. 
But it, it's not like we started that way. I mean, we go through that process of we got to earn trust and respect and all of that. And uh, I mean, it starts with with little things like when the first time we hung out, it was because of Super Bowl and neither of us liked the Super Bowl. And it's like, so uh, do you want to like hang out, I guess, you know, and then we, we kind of uh, that, that was back in high school. And then we, it kind of grows from there. And then then we start dating Adrian. I did a, you know, a very high school guy thing. She asked if we were boyfriend and girlfriend. I'm like, yeah, if you want to be, I guess. Uh, <laughs> So even though we're very close now and we love each other very much now, uh, it took a, a while to get there, you know, and that's, that's just how we work as people. And that makes sense. And there's nothing really wrong with that because people are going to hurt us and maybe not everybody just automatically we should just, you know, be, you know, all out there with everybody. That's, that's just a way to protect. But see, here's what we do though. That's our love. That's the way we conceptualize love. So when we hear about God's love, that He would love us so much that He would pay for our wrongdoing and still love us anyway, we hook God's love onto our love. And they're so different that we we put all of these projections onto God that isn't the way that He loves. See, and we think we need to prove ourselves to Him. And I know I'm this way. I mean, yeah, when I was saved about you know four and a half years ago, it was all about wow, God loves me and all, all those things. I don't remember all my thinking. But like now I get in these modes where I think I got to prove it. Now I got to earn it. Now I got to show, you know, God didn't waste his time saving me. Now I, I got to work for it. And we, we kind of think, and this is, I'm assuming a little, I haven't polled everybody, but I think from my own experience and uh, just from hearing things, we have this kind of assumption because of our imperfect love, that God is always a little bit mad with us. Like God is always kind of mad at people, and we have to do enough to make Him not mad. We have to appease Him, because that's how we love. And now, false religions take advantage of that, because that is what false religions say. God is mad at you. You have to do enough to appease that God, and then He's going to like you, and then He'll bless you, and He might give you eternal life if you've done good enough. And even if it's not a religion, anything we call a God, whether it be comfort, sex, appearance, it's going to ask us to appease it. We're going to have to sacrifice something, money, time, health, something to please whatever we are calling God. We don't think then, see, here's the problem. Here's where I'm getting at. We don't think that God would actually just love us. Like, period. That's it. God just loves us. And that's it. Is we know this intellectually, but we don't live it out. Here's what I do. The way that I live out that problem, that I don't trust that God would just love me, is I'll think like, you know, I better pray at least X amount of minutes. Because a year ago, I would usually pray for like a certain amount of time. I better be praying more now because I'm a, you know, an older Christian. I'll think I better read the Bible X amount of minutes. Because if I only read a couple minutes a day, well, you know, that... That can't be very pleasing to God. I think, you know, I better do stuff out of obligation. I better help people when I don't really want to because, you know, I better do it because God, you know, he might be kind of mad if I don't. That might, you know, might not be a good thing. I better be super busy and spinning in circles and trying to do enough to please him because I'm hanging my human conception of love onto him. And that is just not the way that he loves. But I think... We all do this in some way. We don't, whatever way it works out in your life, we don't just trust that God would love us, period. 
that God does love us, period. Now, we don't have to work to earn it. And we're going to talk about this tonight in the book of Job. And we'll be uh, starting at chapter 22. And we'll read chapter 22, 23, 24, the conversation there. And this is what they talk about, this idea that God doesn't really like people. He's kind of mad at everyone all the time, and you have to do enough to earn his love. Which is like I'm trying to get across is this is something we all struggle with at some point, and it manifests itself in our behavior. And so we're at the part in Job where Job now, his friends, uh, just go on the backstory real quickly. Job has lost everything in his life. His possessions are gone. His house is destroyed. His kids have died. And, you know, long story short, I've recapped it like every week and, and uh, it's mostly the same people here. So I'm not going to recap it again. But uh, the God did that because Satan accused Job to him. Satan said to God, Job will curse you to your face if you get rid of all of his stuff. If you harm him, Job will not love you anymore. And so God gives Satan permission to do that to him. So everything Job has is destroyed. His, his possessions, his house, his kids are killed and his health is gone. He has boils all over his body. It said that he scrapes off with a piece of pottery and his wife has told him to just curse God and die. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that because I can't just accept good things from God. So his friends come to try to comfort him, but they don't comfort him. They do uh, just kind of give him religious things to say. He has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they all take turns talking to Job. And we're starting tonight the, the last time they talk. So this is Eliphaz's third time he speaks up, and then they're done in the book. They're each going to say one more thing, except Zophar, he gets cut off. And then they're done talking to him, but they don't help him at all. And they give him a whole bunch of explanations. Here's why God did this. God killed your kids because, whatever reason, whether he hasn't been good enough, he has some secret sin, uh, that God just doesn't like people. And that's what he's going to say tonight. Eliphaz tells Job, God killed your kids because he just doesn't really like people. What are people to God? So we're going to see this, this, this problem where what happens when we don't trust that God would love us and that God does love us and the all kinds of problems that it leads to. And what I hope that we see is that because God loves us, we need to accept his love for us. And that's a lot harder than it sounds because it's hard for us to accept love and especially hard to accept love with someone we're putting our faith into like God. But, but I hope we can help with that idea of God loves you, period. Okay, that's it. So let's go to Job chapter 22. And here's Eliphaz's kind of statement about it. He, he kind of has this belief God is sort of low-key mad at everybody. He has this idea God just kind of hates us. God is mad at people. And like I'm saying, a lot of us do this in our own certain ways. I don't think we come right out and say it, but let's look at it and see how Eliphaz says it and see if it rings any bells with things we think and things that we hear from people. So chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? See, what, what he says, because he thinks God is just kind of mad at people. His statement here is, God has no joy in people. 
Can men be profitable to God? Are people profitable to God? Does God get any joy out of people? And see, you know, God doesn't need us, but God wants us. That doesn't mean he doesn't have joy in us, the fact that he doesn't need us. See, our God is a triune God. He's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which means he is not lacking in any sort of relationship. God is fully sustained within himself. He didn't make creation because he needed people. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have any joy in us. It means actually he wanted us. It's like in an ideal relationship, you don't have kids because you need kids to complete you, although sometimes that's what we do. Ideally, you just have kids because you want them and you want to share love. See, that's why God created us. But Eliphaz is saying God has no joy in people. God doesn't even really like people. He says, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? What does God care if you're righteous? Does he get any pleasure out of that? I think we should say, yeah, God has a lot of pleasure if we are righteous. And here's how we know. Jesus, I mean, think of what God did to make us righteous. That's what the gospel says, that we are unrighteous and we are sinners and we are wicked. Yet God, in order to make us righteous, left heaven, came to the earth. That's Jesus. And he lived a perfect life in human flesh And he died on our behalf to pay for our sin and to give us his righteousness. So when Eliphaz asks, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? We can say, yeah, it is. It's a huge pleasure to him that we are righteous. Because the only way we're made righteous is to acknowledge that we are unrighteous, but Jesus makes us righteous because he is God and he's defeated death. So God does have joy in people. And he asks, or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Yeah, it is gain to him that we make our ways blameless because the way we do it is not by being a good person, doing good deeds, thinking nice thoughts. It's by Jesus worshiping, accepting Jesus' love for us and acknowledging him as God and turning from our sin and turning to him. So we can say, see, Eliphaz's argument, God doesn't have any joy in people. God gets no pleasure in our righteousness, but he does. Jesus shows us that. And God died for us and rose again for this very reason. He wants a relationship with us. That's why he did it. He wanted to restore our relationship. And we can't earn one, so he did it for us. See, in our way of thinking about love, it's we're all about like earning it. you got to earn love. It's respect and trust and all that. And we can't do that with God. We have no ability to earn God's love. Since we can't, He earned it for us by paying for our sin. So we can say, when we read these verses, Eliphaz is wrong. And God rebukes all the friends very hard. I'm pretty harsh with the friends because God is. When God shows up, He says, you guys didn't say anything that was helpful. Even if it might have been true, it wasn't helpful. So Eliphaz is wrong. God It is pleasure to the Almighty that we are righteous. It is pleasure to the Almighty if our ways are blameless. We are profitable to God. He does have joy in us. So he's not just mad at us. Because here's the next part of it. He goes on. And he tells Job, first he says, you know, God God is just kind of mad at us. God gets no joy in us. And then he tells Job that he hasn't been good enough to earn God's love. Verse 4. Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you? 
and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore snares are all around you and sudden fear troubles you or darkness so that you cannot see. An abundance of water covers you. So verse 4 and 5, if you look at those, these are rhetorical questions. Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment to you? Job, is it because you've been so good that God has killed your kids? And that's what he's getting at. Uh, Job, you, you haven't been good enough to earn God's love. God gets no joy in us and you didn't earn any joy from him. It's because you've been wicked that God has done this to you. He says, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? See, but here's the thing. We know from chapter 1, that's not true. God was very pleased with Job. And so what Eliphaz is doing is just making assumptions. And then he even goes more. Verses 6 through 11, he's just making up stuff. He's saying, haven't you done that? Haven't you, uh, you've taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. I mean, he just starts throwing accusations at him, saying, these are some things, you must have done stuff like this. That's why you haven't earned God's love. And he does this because his God view is God is just kind of mad at everybody. You really have to earn it. You really have to be good. Or God is just kind of mad at us. And that's what we do. We think God, we got to appease him. We got to please him. He wouldn't just love us. He doesn't just love us. So we got to work really hard to earn it. We got to be good enough to earn his love. Because continuing what he says, is then we get this idea like God is just waiting for us to mess up. God is just waiting for us to make one wrong move so he can strike us down, so he can smite us with his wrath. I mean, read. let's go to verse 12 now. Is not God in the height of heaven and see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see and he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod? who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses <coughs> with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So he tells Job, you know, Job, because God is just kind of mad at all of us. He is waiting for the chance to strike us all down. He's mocking him. Right here is what Eliphaz is doing. And remember that, I mean, just to show how unhelpful the friends are, they come there to comfort Job and all of his distress. And now they're at the point of making fun of him. And they're also not addressing his problems at all. They're debating theology at this point. But he mocks him. He says, and you say, what does God know? See, he's mocking what Job said earlier. Job said earlier, his point, his case is that there's a ton of people on this earth who are wicked and sinful and they got it just fine. They're, they're blessed. Nothing bad happens to them. And because his friends are saying, if something bad happens to you, that means you've done something bad. And Job tells them that doesn't make any sense when you look at the world and what people are getting away with. And so Eliphaz here is making fun of him. You say, what does God know? He, he's telling Job that Job is accusing God of not knowing what's going on. 
And he's saying God does know what goes on and he's going to strike everyone down. When they make one too many mistakes, God is waiting to strike them down. He, he's waiting for a time for him to unleash his righteous fury on the evildoers. And so again, when we have this conception that God's love for us is not unconditional, and this is kind of what we're waiting for. Hey, when is God going to take away this? What am I going to do to, to make God unhappy with me? I better keep at it. I better read X amount of minutes. I better pray X amount of minutes. I better do this and this and this. So God doesn't take something from me. That's, that's this idea that God is kind of mad at us, which is not true. We'll get there. And then let's read verse 19 and 20. He says, the righteous see it and are glad and the innocent laugh at them. Surely your adversaries are cut down and the fire consumes their remnant. Here's where this kind of thinking gets really, really wicked. It's not just that they're putting the Eliphaz is not only just putting his projection onto God about, you know, God is just kind of mad at people and you got to earn it. He's now become self-righteous about it. And because here's, here's what we do. If we're saying God is kind of mad at people and he's waiting to strike people down and you better not do enough bad things because God is going to strike us down. What we're saying also is good thing that I'm good enough because God really loves me. He doesn't love everyone, but he loves me. He's kind of mad at most people, but he's not mad at me because Eliphaz is what he says in verse 19 when he's talking about God wiping people out. He says, the righteous see it and are glad and the innocent laugh at them. People who are good people like us, we just laugh when stuff happens to bad people, when God finally gives them what they deserve, when His righteous fury is unleashed upon the earth. And we just laugh. Because I guess we're good enough. He doesn't hate us. And this is that self-righteous, hypocritical, religious response that God is mad at everyone. And he's full of wrath and fury and he will smite you, but not us. We've done right. God is not going to do anything to us because we've done right. See, this is though exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23 when he was yelling at the Pharisees saying, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So see here, the religious part is that people were... God's wrath is coming. We're going to talk about God's wrath. Don't think I'm dismissing God's wrath. We're going to get there. But it's this idea of, well, let's just wait for the wrath. You know, America is under God's wrath because we've done these things and now God's wrath is being unleashed and, you know, it's great things. It's, it's that thing where we're just looking at stuff and saying God is doing punishment and just kind of like, oh, finally his wrath is here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Hey, we're laying burdens on people but not doing anything to help. So Eliphaz saying, the righteous see it and laugh. Just laughing at the misery. You know, God's finally unleashing his wrath on people. See, and that's what happens when we think God doesn't love people, when he's just kind of angry all the time, and he's just waiting for people to screw up so he can unleash his wrath, and then it's just, oh, yeah, that's what they deserve. And then he finishes up his statement with what we all finish up with this message of the angry, you know, God is just mad at everyone, is be good and God will love you too. Hey, verse 21. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. 
If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him. He will hear you and He will pay your vows. You will... You will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down and you say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. See, his, his message to Job is God doesn't really like people. He's just waiting for us to mess up, to unleash his wrath. Be a good person like us and God will like you too. Then he'll listen to your prayers. He'll make everything right with your life. He'll give you gold. You'll lay down in the gold. And yeah, his kids have just died. And you know, this isn't the case. Job was not turning from God. That's Job 1 and 2, so important for understanding this book. You see, if, if our view of God is this, he's just kind of mad. Why would we want to serve him? I mean, that's the problem. If this is the way we see it, and we need to ask, do we make our God look like this? Because I do. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, this version of God should sound kind of familiar. That God is just kind of mad at people, and there's wrath coming, and, and you better be good like us so that uh, He'll like you too. Romans 2.4 says, it's God's goodness that leads to repentance. See, you know, the truth is, yeah, we are wicked and we do deserve God's wrath. And we'll get into God's wrath, the other side of this picture at the end. And because we're wicked and sinners, we don't even want to mend this relationship with God without his own intervention. I was reading an article about uh, America's favorite heresies. And 87, it was like 87% of uh, self-described born-again Christians believe the heresy that... <clears throat> Man can turn to God on his own will. And the Bible doesn't say that. That We have no desire. We, yeah, we can do some religious things and try to be you know, good in that, but to truly turn to God in true repentance takes an act of God turning our hearts towards him. See, and that's the truth. So we don't want to mend this relationship with him. That's why it takes God dying for our sins in order to do this, because we're so sinful. Yeah, maybe we want the relationship on our terms, but not on his. But part of what God does to draw people to him is the message that the church has, the church of Christ, that everyone. And I don't know if any unbeliever has heard the message that God is just mad at you, be good like us, and he'll like you too. It's God's goodness that leads to repentance. Because that version of God is not the God of the Bible. I mean, I can assure you, there's like a 2,000-some a page book here that says that that is not the God we worship. What that God is, is a self-righteous, holier-than-thou, religious, hypocritical construction of man so that we can smugly look down on people and glory in our righteousness. See, that's what that version of God is all about. See, not only does that so-called God not lead anybody to repentance, it stunts our own growth as Christians. And I want to be very clear, like I'm... Definitely not excluding myself in any of this. I think of God like this plenty of times. And what it does to me, what it does to all of us, is it stunts our growth as Christians. Because how can we do anything if we're kind of afraid of God? 
And we think God doesn't just love us, but we kind of got to earn it. How can we do anything for him? You know, it's like with, with my wife. I'll bring the lock because we're trying to, you know, hook that knowledge on as imperfect as it is. If I'm constantly in fear of her, we can't really have a good relationship. Because even if I'm doing good things, all I'm trying to do is avoid her yelling at me. I mean, and that's bad on both. That's bad for me. That's selfish. That's saying, I only do nice things for my wife so that she doesn't yell at me. That's not love. That's selfish. But it's also mean to her because she's not like that. And she's not always mad at me. And if I think she is and I got to do X, Y, Z for her in order for her to like me, that's really mean to her because that's not how she is. And so when we do the same thing with God, well, God is pretty mad at me. I got to do X, Y, Z or he's going to be mad at me. Well, it's selfish from my point of view because I'm only doing things because I'm afraid God is going to be mad. But it's also really mean to God who died for you to be his child. And you're saying, you know, he's just kind of mad at me unless I do certain things. See, that's how it stunts our growth. You can't grow in a relationship with that. And what it leads to is Job's response here. So Eliphaz says, God is just kind of mad at people. Job's response is, and this is what happens, is he's afraid of God. If we think God is mad at us, we become afraid of him rather than loving him. So we're going to go now to Job's response. And at this point in the conversation, uh, Eli, or the friends are ignoring Job's problem. They're just debating theology with him. Job is mostly ignoring his friends. He usually starts a statement with like, yeah, you know, just shut up. And then he goes on to some other topic. So for the most part, he ignores what Eliphaz has to tell him because he knows all they're saying is garbage. And God agrees with him. God says that later on. But what he shows us is he kind of goes along with it, though. He kind of agrees. Yeah, God is kind of mad at people. And he says, he says it straight out. He's terrified of God. So let's look at his response. Chapter 23. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. And I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There would be, there the upright could reason with him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. So see, he doesn't really refute him. What he says though is God would listen to me if I could just talk to him. In Job's case, the whole book is saying, I know I haven't done anything wrong. Don't tell me God is punishing me. What I want is my chance to talk to God, to go to him and plead my case. And he says, if I could plead my case to God, I know I'd be found right. And that's really kind of his flaw, which we'll get into when God shows up. But what he's saying here is, if I could just talk to God, he'd listen to me. And he's thinking he has to prove himself to him. Because what he said through the book is that if I could explain my case, God would take it all away. God would take it back. He has to prove himself. See, that's that mentality. i got to prove myself to God. Verse 8. Look. I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. 
When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He, we, we see his hurt here. He knows he's been good. He's, my foot has felt, held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and not turned aside. He knows God didn't kill my kids because I've done the wrong thing. But even though he knows he's kept to God's commandments, what he says is he can't see God working. I go forward, he's not there. I go backward, I can't perceive him. When he works on the left, I can't behold him. On the right, I can't see him. So he doesn't see God working at all. And again, this is what happens. See, when we're in this state of constantly proving ourselves to God, and this is the way that, that I get, I mean, am I really seeing the power of God working when, when I turn, you know, praying into a routine, Bible reading into a re- routine, helping people into a routine, just to try to avoid negative consequences? Is that really how God works? Am I seeing him work there? Job isn't seeing God in this. Verse 13, But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. See, these verses are kind of the test here. Does this idea make you afraid? Or does it make you thankful? Job says, who can make him change? Whatever his soul desires, that he does. He performs what is appointed for me. And see, Job is right. I mean, we know God is sovereign. Everything that happens is because God allowed it or caused it. Who can make him change? Whatever he wants to do, he does it. He performs what's appointed for me. You see, now, that idea for some is very scary because we've been through stuff like Job. Maybe not all ten of your kids dying, but similar things, losing everything, someone close to you dying. I mean, all sorts of evil and wickedness. And Job is very scared of this idea. But it doesn't have to be scary. It can be thankful because here's what Paul says about this idea in Romans 12 about the idea that God is sovereign and He is in control and He's decided my life. Here's what Paul says. Romans 12, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. See, that's the response of someone who trusts God's love. Yet God is in control and God is in charge. And yes, bad things happen, but oh, the depth and wisdom and knowledge of God. How magnificent are his ways and past finding out. See, there's the difference. Someone like Paul who knows God's love and how much he loves, that just results in joy, even though Paul went through some very bad things as well. But he rejoices in God's sovereignty, whereas Job, look at what he says. Verse 15. His response to this, Therefore I am terrified at his presence. That idea terrifies him. 
I am terrified at His presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of Him. For God made my heart weak and the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness and He did not hide deep darkness from my face. Chapter 24. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know Him see not His days? Like that terrifies Him. And He asks, why don't the people who love God and know God, why don't they see Him working? Why don't they see His righteousness and justice? Why do all these bad things happen? So two people have been in the similar situations resulting in different responses. So now, we'll do 24 quickly because it finishes his response. See, he's terrified of God and what he wants God to do now because he's terrified of him. He doesn't trust God. He thinks God is mad. Is he wants God now to prove himself to him. Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out. Yet God does not charge them with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they mark for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who do not bear and does no good for the widow. See, he lists all these awful things people do. And God doesn't do anything to them. They should be punished. They should die. They should be remembered no more. But they keep going on. And they get everything where Job has lost everything. See, he wants God to prove he can trust him. Because God is mad at us. I'm afraid of God. Now God has to earn the relationship back with me. And how backwards is that? See, that's the point we get to where it's I'm the problem in the relationship. But when we have this way of thinking, now God is. And now we're asking God, prove to me you're actually good. Show me something that you're good, that you are just. Then he finishes. Here's his conclusion is we should all just be afraid. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it. Yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. They are brought low, they are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? See, everyone dies. 
doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are, you're going to die. We should all just be afraid of God. So, you know, how could... Again, I think we've all been in this way of thinking, but we got to... I want to show you that God doesn't work that way. And there's a ton of verses I could say, but I was just going to pick a few. God doesn't work this way. This is not God. Consider for a moment all the evil we've put into the world. You personally, but we as people. I can't even paint a picture of this depravity, but we all know. I mean, we we judge, we gossip, we slander, we tear down, we abuse, we rape, we murder, we make wars, we hurt people. It's What we've done to this world is disgusting. But here's God. Exodus 2, he says, Then the children of Israel groaned because of, the, because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. See, when they were suffering, God listened to them. And He saves them. Exodus 34, The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in good and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's what God's saying. He is loving, abounding in mercy, forgiving iniquity. That's who He is. L- listen to this, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. See, does that sound like a God who has no joy in people? God rejoices over you with singing. He rejoices over you with gladness. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, while we'd done nothing during that relationship, he died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead to God, because of our sin, because of His great love with which He loved us. He made us alive again. First John 4.10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God sent His Son, not because we earned it, because, oh, they've been you know, suffering long enough and they've been pretty good. You know, Jesus, just go finish it off for them. It's because He loved us is why Jesus came to the earth. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Maybe most of all, Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, God is for us. And we look no further than the cross of Jesus, His death and resurrection. Because I... I, just, I take that for granted so much in my own life. Yeah, Jesus, you died for me. You forgave me. But you know what? My life is kind of boring right now. And, and I just want some more excitement. And, like all this stuff I whine about. And he's 
proven His love. He died for you when you didn't deserve it, while you were a sinner, while you were dead to Him. He died, and He is for you, so who can be against you? Certainly not God. It says, if God did not spare His Son, why is He going to withhold any good thing from you? So this idea that God is just kind of mad at us and we got to appease Him, we got to do certain amount of things for Him to like us, is just not biblical. That is clear. It's His love is why He wants a relationship with us. He rejoices over us. He has died for us and risen and forgiven us and given us His righteousness. But see, then it's do we believe that? Do we accept that? That's the hard part. I want to end with uh, going to break a little rule in conclusions by introducing a new idea in the conclusion. Because uh, we need the balanced perspective on this. You know that, yes, God does love us without our earning it. That's the point of the gospel. Just a couple verses I shared with that. See, the, the God who's an ogre, who's just kind of a little mad with people all the time, that's not true. That's a false idol. That's a false God. That's someone we made up. But... So is the hippie God who just loves everything as it is and, and doesn't care about sin. You know, I just, I just love everyone and, and I'm not going to ask anyone to change. That's also a false idol. So we've got to put that together for that balanced perspective. Yeah, John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's consider that. God so loved the world. That means God so loved Muslims. God so loved Democrats. God so loved Republicans. God so loved homosexuals. God so loved the unborn. God so loved the elderly. God so loved atheists. God so loved agnostics. God so loved gossips like us. God so loved adulterers. God so loved addicts. God so loved liars. God so loved traitors. God so loved murderers. God so loved rapists. God so loved abusers. See, some of that should make us a little bit uncomfortable that God would so love some of those people. And that's where God's love is truly shown. God is not an evil ogre, but he's also not a spineless hippie. And isn't it amazing that God loves abusers? Yes. But here's the other side. Yeah, it's amazing that God will love those who abuse. But is it loving to the one who's been abused? that he so loves them. Not if there's no justice. If there's no justice, if there's no wrath of God, yeah, it's loving to the abuser to forgive him, but it's not loving to the one who was abused. There has to be justice or there's no love. There has to be wrath or there's no love. If someone hurt my kids and I just said, oh, it's okay, man. I love you. You're fine. That's not loving to my kids. If the legal system says, yeah, you know what, you, you abuse some little kids, but we love you, it's okay. That's not loving to the kids. If God says, you know, everyone is just cool, man, that's not loving to the people who've been hurt. See, that's why our God is love, and our God is wrathful. So we've got to bring the wrath of God into this. I don't want to just say God loves us you know, yeah, he does, but there, there's a little bit more to it because part of that love has to be his wrath or he doesn't love the people who've been hurt, which is all of us in some way. And we've all hurt and been hurt. So that means we're all under God's wrath. There has to be justice 
for the people that we've hurt. But I'm not an abuser, you might say. But then where do you draw the line? Who's been so bad they don't deserve the love? And who's been just kind of bad so they do? And is that love, if there's a line, is that love? God is love. He doesn't draw a line. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All are guilty. All are subject to his wrath. But all are welcome to his love through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So it's very important that we accept his love. If we don't, we're going to run in circles, not doing anything. We're going to not want to turn to him. Why do you want to turn to someone who you think is just kind of mad at you? We're not going to trust him when our lives fall apart. We're going to ask him, you know, you need to prove yourself to me again, God. I'm pretty mad. We're not going to trust him that he's just, that there will be justice. We're going to think we're better than other people when he's not mad at us. We're going to think that we have to appease him. And we're always going to be expecting something evil to happen to us just around the corner. I better watch my step because God's waiting to knock me down. So it's very important that we know that God is love. If you're not a Christian, what that means is you need to repent because you've hurt people and there is justice and you're subject to his wrath. But God loves you enough to forgive you that while you're a sinner, he offers forgiveness. For those of us who are Christians, if God is for us, who can be against us? But the question is then, do you really think God is for you? Do you really think that? Or do you think God is just kind of mad at you sometimes? How is that hindering your joy in your relationship with him? Are you afraid of God in a bad way? If our God is for us, then who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great, great love. Because we destroyed our relationship with you, but you did everything to restore it. You left heaven, became a man, lived in this world, perfectly suffered unjustly, died for us, took our sin upon you, bore our wrath, and rose from death to show us you were victorious and there's life in you forever. So we thank you so much, God, for your love. And help us to trust that love and accept it. God, you did nothing for us to think that you are just kind of mad at us and we got to appease you. So help us to rejoice in your love, trust in it, and grow in our relationship with you. Father, I pray if there's anyone who is listening right now who doesn't know you, that you would turn their hearts towards you to repent, ask for forgiveness and life in your name. Father, for those of us who do know you, I pray again, help us to know your love, trust your love, Rejoice in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time And tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.